Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. This is Dr. Mark Opler speaking, and I'm here today with Dr. Nathaniel Katz. Uh, Dr. Katz, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't we begin with just a brief personal introduction for our listeners? Uh, perhaps you could share with them how you got into the field, uh, tell them a little bit about your research focus, and why what we do matters to you personally. Sure. Uh, first, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you today. It's, it's a pleasure. Um, I uh, first trained as a neurologist here in Boston, and then as a neurologist, it became obvious to me that our clinics were filled with uh, patients with chronic pain, so I felt that I needed to uh, get more training in that area. So I went ahead and, and did a pain management fellowship also here in Boston and then spent uh, my clinical career uh, here at uh, Brigham Women's Hospital and, and also managing the pain program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, so that gave me my entree into the field of pain management. In terms of my research focus, I would say that it's evolved over, over the last 25 years that I've been in the field. Initially, I would say that my main interest uh, was the opioids, uh, and mm-hmm. both in terms of their benefits and in terms of their harm, since since uh, understanding those has been an important issue for literally thousands of years, um, I saw an opportunity to shed more light on those areas. However, in the past, I would say 10 to 15 years, as I became more interested in doing something about the limitations of the treatments for pain that are currently available, which are pretty horrendous, as everybody knows, uh, and I began to get more interested in developing new treatments for pain, I discovered how uh, difficult the process of clinical trials uh, can be. And so for the last 10 or 15 years, my main focus has been trying to figure out what goes, what can go wrong in clinical trials and how we can uh, make them better. Thank you for that. And, you know, jumping off of, of your, your comment about the, the difficulties of conducting clinical trials, maybe we could spend just a, a few minutes talking about what you see as the top three challenges in current trial methodologies and trial conduct. Well, uh, it's a challenge to narrow it down to three challenges. Um, <laughs> there, there, are, there are many, as you know from your own work and, and CNS research, uh, I would say the main, uh, among the many that we have found to have a major impact on the reliability of the results of the study, <clears throat> I would say uh, three that come to mind are whether the patients are reporting their symptoms accurately, that it would say is number one, and the second one is the placebo response, which you, you of course, have had your own, uh, uh, developed your own expertise in as well. And thirdly, um, something so mundane as patient adherence to medications. Uh, and maybe I'll just spend a moment um, expanding on uh, each of those. Uh, sure. In terms of in terms of accuracy of symptom reporting, when I when I got interested in clinical trials about uh, ten or fifteen years ago, the assumption was as long as you gave the subject a validated questionnaire, then everything would work out fine. Somehow the questionnaire would populate itself and, and the reports would be accurate. So we, we questioned that assumption and uh, based on our own research program consisting of multiple clinical trials, we're able to show that 
In fact, patients vary quite a bit in terms of how accurately uh, they can report their pain, and we have every reason to believe that applies across the board to any other subjective symptom as well, and that you can quantify how accurately somebody reports their pain, and you can use that as a tool to either screen uh, people who can't report pain accurately out of pain studies because there's no reason to expose them to risks that can't uh, provide useful information. Uh, or we've also shown that you can train patients to report their pain more accurately, and, and the result of that has been an, an accurate pain reporting training program that has been quite quite widely taken up throughout the industry. But, but even more importantly than that, has really shattered this dogma that we can just ignore the role of the individual subject in, in generating accurate uh, research results. Uh, and instead, we can do better by by supporting by supporting them, reporting their symptoms accurately. So that's one. Uh, number two, every, everyone's familiar with the terrible placebo response, and we've done a lot of work trying to figure out exactly what causes the placebo response in pain studies as well as in other therapeutic areas. Uh, and it turns out that that the cause of the placebo response has surprising and unexpected links to the first problem I spoke about, which is accurate pain reporting. And by getting patients to be more introspective about what's going on inside their own bodies, you can also train them to not only report their pain more accurately, as I suggested earlier, but, but that also in some sense inoculates them against the external cues that drive the placebo response. So placebo response would be number two, and a uh, quick comment on the third. There's so many, but patient adherence has got to rise very high on the list, and we know that Medications don't work if the patients don't take them, and uh, yet it's it's uh, shocking how little we do in clinical trials to uh, address that issue. So that that's an important direction as well. Fascinating. Thank thank you for sharing that. And you know, thinking a little bit about our, our listeners on the other end of today's podcast, many of them I'm sure are going to be planning clinical trials in pain in related areas. What are the three pieces of advice that you would give them uh, as they begin to develop their programs, their development programs, in the coming weeks and months? I think the most important overall consideration that I could try to alert uh, people to is that when your protocol is done, before you just hand it off to your operations group for execution, take a good hard look at the protocol and ask yourself what are you actually asking people to do and where might people's performance vary from one person to another one investigator to another one patient to another one study coordinator to another etc and in those different areas of performance which are, would have a major impact on the primary endpoint if they were in fact uh, variable and based on that uh, implement a comprehensive plan to provide either training or job aids or surveillance or uh, enhanced monitoring or uh, other sorts of techniques to ensure that people are uh, hitting performance targets in terms of how well they perform their roles in this clinical trial. That uh, We actually do that in a formal way. That's called the data quality risk assessment. But uh, and, and once that's done, that suggests all sorts of specific uh, actions that should be taken 
to, for example, control the placebo response or help patients report their pain more accurately or make sure that adherence is taken care of or patients don't take prohibited medications or they show up for their visits on schedule. There's a whole list of things that people have to do uh, according to certain performance specifications and mapping that all out up front, which may in fact lead to changes in the protocol, but at least will help uh, support a creation of um, uh, different uh, methods to promote performance across all aspects, of, as, all aspects of the study. I think that performance mindset is really the key. So moving from, from that, uh, another question I wanted to ask you. Uh, would you mind sharing with us just a, a couple of the developments in clinical research of the past year or so that excited you, you know, things that have happened that you felt were, were really noteworthy, and, and why? why? Why do these events in your mind matter? For me, the, the, the context of what I find exciting is that New molecular entities have not done well in pain research over the last quarter century or so. Very few uh, new molecular entities addressing new targets to try to truly supplant uh, the very limited treatments that we have today. Very few have made it to uh, the marketplace. And in the last year or two, we've actually seen some signs of a reversal of that trend. For example, we have the anti-nerve growth factor antibodies that are in development in two very large programs, and if those do indeed uh, end up getting approved, then that will be, I think, the first major new molecular entity that will have entered the market in pain in a long time. And then also recently we have, in fact, had successful approvals of anti-CGRP antibodies for migraine, and uh, that's another uh area where it's been a long time since uh, a new molecular entity has hit the market. And so, though, and there have been other uh, other examples of well, as well of exciting products in, the, in development that are new molecular entities that are kind of breaking the mold in terms of this uh, sort of lackluster performance we've had for such a long period of time. And these are exciting to me for two reasons. The first is, is the obvious one, which is that patients will now have more treatment options, which is which is always good, and options that are not just reformulations, but that are truly new therapies. That's one reason. But a second reason, which is more subtle, but may ultimately prove to be even more important, is that we can actually use these examples to start thinking about what did what went right in these programs that contrast with what has gone wrong in so many other programs, so we can start to learn broader lessons about uh, analgesic drug development overall that may help uh, uh, energize a whole generation of programs to mm -hmm. come behind uh, these programs. And that, to me, is a, a long-awaited and very exciting time. Well, thank you very much for that. It, it strikes me you know, that there are decided parallels between uh, analgesic research and what what we've seen, for example, in psychiatry, and, and I couldn't agree with you more. The the need for new molecular entities and moving beyond the me too's uh, has been vital. Uh, we finally have, interestingly, a, a quarter century worth of breakthrough in uh, depression in psychiatry for the first time, uh, as as we've seen. So hope hope to see the same kinds of landmark events 
in pain in the near future. Yes, um, and if I could add, uh, I think that the the um, without presupposing insights that will arise as time goes on, I think that the major learning that will arise from comparing the success of some of the current programs to past failures is that a focus on methodology is what makes the difference between a successful program and a failed program. And that's being pursued, I think, successfully, although with fits and starts as well, in two arenas. There's been a tremendous focus, which you yourself have been part of on the CNS side, to try to examine where clinical research methodology needs to be improved so we can actually know whether our treatments are working or not. And in parallel, on the basic science side, there's been, I think, for the first time in, in a generation, the beginnings of an honest self-examination of where basic science research methodology uh, has led to non-reproducible results that then led, have led to clinic failures in the clinic. And I think those, those two areas of honest self-examination on the clinical and the basic science side are what is going to make a difference for the next generation of uh, uh, Drugs and development. So, it's interesting. You should you should say that. You know, I'm I'm wondering if you could share with us what you see as the top three opportunities for clinical development in in pain and analgesia. Where where is where is the next revolution going to come from? Where do you where do you think people need to be looking and looking hard? Well, in terms of clinical research methodology, I think over the next year we will start to see the emergence of comprehensive uh, treatments of best practices and clinical research methods. Up in, you know, in the last, I would say the last 15 or 18 years, especially on the pain side, since the impact group was started by Bob Rappaport uh, at the FDA. Uh, we have focused on improving clinical research methods in a kind of piecemeal way. First, we have a paper on what's the best measure. Then we have a paper on what are the best domains. Then we have a paper on on uh, how to validate new measures. And it's it's been rather piecemeal. But over the next year or so, we will see syntheses emerge where we have comprehensive sets of best practices that are um, that are put forth that cover not only a few piecemeal areas, but, but everything together, like adherence and concomitant medications and controlling physical activity and the whole, the whole long list of uh, things that have to be taken care of in order for a trial to generate an accurate uh, measure of the effectiveness of the treatment that's being studied. Uh, and that, I think, will usher in a new, uh, maybe I'm being grandiose, but I think that will uh -huh. usher in a new era of clinical research where, where, the, where the tide of, of research quality is, is elevated for everyone. Well, that, that would be a very exciting yeah. development, and I think it would be a, a nice model for other therapeutic areas as well. Um, and, you know, to encourage a little more grandiosity, um, which I'm enjoying, <laughs> Could I ask you one last question, Dr. Katz, and that is, you know, what do you see coming down the road over the next 9 to 12 months? Give us your prediction. Look into your crystal ball and tell us what you think is, is going to happen in the future in this area uh, and what we might be 
surprised by, pleasantly or otherwise. The um, pendulum of uh, energy and resources expended in the development of treatments for pain has swung back and forth over the last uh, century, actually, mm-hmm. um, since the 1920s when the federal government, in response to the first prescription opioid crisis after the Civil War, uh, initiated a uh, program to try to find better treatments for pain that lasted through most of the 20th century. But towards the end of the 20th century, just in maybe the last you know, 15 uh, years or so, um, enthusiasm waned and uh, the government funding for pain research became virtually zero and investors um, started you know, one by one leaving the pain space because of all the failures that, that I alluded to earlier. However, a few hardy souls you know, stuck it out and uh, some courageous companies have continued to uh, invest uh, substantial amounts of resources and, and also in response to the second opioid crisis, the one we're living in right now, the federal government has recently pumped in almost a billion dollars into uh, pain and also addiction research. Uh, I also think that a few of the programs that I mentioned earlier will read out. Some have been approved already. And I think the combination of governmental investment in research and the success of some pharmaceutical companies in getting new molecular entities over the finish line, uh, as well as what I hope will be FDA comments about accelerating, doing what they can to accelerate the development of analgesics and putting those words into practice. I think the combination of all those factors will uh, get investors interested again, and I think the tide is going to swing very forcefully in the direction of uh, renewed investment in pain research over the coming uh, decades. All of which can only be good news for patients and their families who suffer with pain conditions. So good, good to hear. Uh, any final thoughts or words for our listeners before we adjourn? Maybe only one final word, which is that um, we've learned a lot by very close examination of what can go wrong in pain studies and figuring out how to remediate uh, those problems. And of course, pain has just been a working laboratory for us. The same principles apply in any therapeutic area, which you certainly, uh, I'm sure, would agree based on your experience in, in CNS research. And now what I'm hoping is that as we uh, attempt to shine a light on how to do better quality pain research, we can at the same time uh, try to work with others such as yourself uh, in adjacent fields to carry those principles into other therapeutic areas where uh, research methodology suffers from the same um, uh, maladies and I think can benefit from similar uh, uh, approaches. So we're looking forward to uh, those collaborations in the coming years as well. As am I, Dr. Katz. And uh, with that, I think we will we will finish up. I want to thank you once again for spending some time with us today. Uh, for our listeners, uh, you've been listening to uh, Dr. Nathaniel Katz. And uh, with that, we say thank you, Dr. Katz. Appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.